You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. You're joined here with Abby, and I have a very special guest with us today. He is the guru of the Golden Coast, my man from Cali, Hirsch Jane. How are you, buddy? Hey, Abby. It's uh, great to be here today. How you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Um, I think I'm getting some California weather out here in Toronto right now. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's it's like 35 degrees Celsius, which I think is like a hundred and something. Oh wow, uh, Fahrenheit. Warm. It's really warm out here. It's really warm out here, but it's a little bit more humid and muggy. Oh man, that, that's that's rough. Yeah, it's an, an 80 degree day in Los Angeles. Another beautiful. Oh, <laughs> that's like every day, right? Isn't that yeah. like every single day in LA? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, man. So look, really happy to have you here on the podcast. Um, for those of you who don't know Hirsch, Hirsch is actually the founder of Ananda Strategies, which is a consulting serve. Uh, sorry, which is a consultancy that serves the cannabis brands and retailers out in California. Uh, they help them with competitive licensing, and they also help strategically identify what jurisdictions across the state for the companies to expand into. Um, that is a tremendous value add, in my opinion, uh, just because we've discussed it through and through of California being highly fragmented. And so having someone um, such as yourself, Hirsch, kind of define what that means and how you look into it and how we can sort of uh, understand the California market a lot better. That's, um, that's got me really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited for this uh, conversation. And like you said, Abby, you know, the, the California market is really fragmented. So we help brands and retailers, you know, obtain licenses, but also identify where strategically they want to be across the state, you know, how assets values will change over time, and how local regulations make it favorable to set up in a certain jurisdiction. So um, obviously, the California market's really detailed and, and really enjoy the work. Yeah, absolutely. Really detailed is a very well way way to put it. I think it's the most convoluted market across any, like any market ever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was one company we were, that I was working with a while back, and um, this is when like uh, they, they were applying for a distribution license, and I just remember seeing the paperwork for that distribution license, and it was like a hundred pages. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the regulatory burden is intense. And as you mentioned, the market is highly fragmented, but I also think that makes the market like an ideal place for innovation. And that fragmentation can also be a source of opportunity for different operators that think about that fragmentation strategically. But it's, you know, super complicated, unlike any other market in the country. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. And so, I mean, look, with that, there already is a lot to unpack in just what we just spoke about. But um, let's just kind of quickly go over the agenda. Uh, so today is Sunday, August 22nd. Um, it's about 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 1.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. Um, this episode will most likely air on Wednesday, either Wednesday the 25th or Wednesday, September 1st, depending on wh where we get it. So just keep in mind that when you are listening, the information that's going to be said in this uh, in this episode is as of um, uh, Sunday, August uh, 22nd. Um, and with that, I mean, you know, we really want to take this time to explain the California market and let you guys be the judge of whether California is right for you or not right for you, right? Like California has been beaten quite a bit. So let's start with where does where do we stand in California today? Where is everything? What's What does the market look like right now? Then we'll sort of talk about why has California been beaten and why not, why you shouldn't want to invest in California or what you should be um, looking for when you do invest in California. And then we can kind of look at sort of what's happened in the last couple of years and see what's really changed about California, right? California hasn't remained stagnant, even though it hasn't really been the, the number one state to invest in. It's There's been a lot of developments that's sort of go, gone on, so we can kind of go in a little bit further. Uh, and then Hirsch, while we have you here, we'd love to know what your investment thesis is, figure out what it is that you look for when you're investing in California and what you would recommend for somebody who isn't necessarily, you know, who, who doesn't live in California and is, you know, limited to just doing research online right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah. And then after that, we can sort of highlight some major risks as we always do, right? In this podcast, we like to talk about not only opportunities, but also uncertainties and uncertainties and risks are where those uncertainties lie. And so we can kind of go into that. Um, it's a pretty packed episode. So I say we just kick it off. Cool. That sounds great. 
All right. Yeah. So, I mean, Hirsch, given your background, your expertise, um, where do we stand in California? Like we all know California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, we know the size of the population, but where is California from a cannabis perspective? Yeah, Abby. So, you know, as you said, California is obviously a massive population center, 40 million people, one out of every eight Americans lives in California. Uh, in 2020, California generated $4.4 billion in legal sales. So obviously the biggest market uh, in the United States, but its illicit market continues to dwarf the legal market. So the illegal market in California in 2020 was estimated at about $10 billion when the legal market was you know, only 4.4. Mm-hmm. Um, but the legal market has grown you know, considerably over the past couple of years. You know, in, in 2019, California generated $3.1 billion in legal sales. Um, and in 2018, it generated $2.5 billion. So over the course of the first few years of, of the legal market, it's grown from 2.5 uh, to 4.4. And one of the things that we've seen is that growth has continued to accelerate in 2021. So for every month of 2021, with the exception of February, which is a short month, uh, California generated at least $400 million in legal sales. And if you know you, you do some quick math, obviously that's close to five billion dollars um, annually. And you know this past month, July 2021, California set a new record, um, generating 440 million dollars in legal sales, which would you know approximately be a 5.3 billion dollar run rate. Um, and you know sometime early next year, California will hit its first half billion dollar month. And so that's all to say, obviously the illegal market still dwarfs the legal market. And you know in a second we can talk about why that's the case. But I think it's important to note that the market has continued to experience steady growth over the past years. And, you know, it, it's no joke to sell half a billion dollars of legal cannabis in a given month, which California will do at some point, you know, in the first quarter of next year. Which is absolutely insane to hear that, right? Doing half a billion dollars a month in cannabis, doing $400 million for the last six months, excluding February. Um, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, those numbers are screaming like, hey, we need to get into this space, right? Or we need to get into this state. Um, so with that, I mean, you know, there's, there's a couple, a couple things that we always hear about California, right? One one of them is taxes. Taxes Mm -hmm. are absolutely awful out in California. Um, and obviously with, with cannabis and U S cannabis particularly, we've got 280E. So with that, I mean, where do you, like, where, where does California stand right now in a, in a, from a tax perspective? Because yeah, like the, the $400 million sales does sound great, but it's like, how much of that does the company actually get to keep? Right. And taxes is a big factor of determining how much of that the, the companies actually get to keep. Yeah. You know, Abby, I see taxes as one of several factors that contributes to the big problem in California, which is just the persistence of the illegal market. So we were just talking about how the legal market has grown, but the illegal market continues to dwarf the, the legal market. And I think taxes is one of about three reasons for that. Um, I, I think the first reason why the illegal market remains so big in California is just local control. So there are 482 cities in California, and when California legalized cannabis, it gave each city the ability to determine whether they wanted to allow cannabis businesses within their borders. And, you know, really the the crazy thing is when Prop 64 passed back in 2016, so this is almost, you know, five and a half years ago now, 342 of the 482 cities voted for Prop 64, right? So 70% of cities across the state voted for legal cannabis, and yet today, only 182 cities allow for cannabis businesses of any kind, and only 114 of them, right? So one out of every four cities or so allows for cannabis retail. So there's a tremendous disconnect in California between the will of the people and cities that have passed retail cannabis ordinances. And this is something that we see across the country, but we also see in California. And so because of that, California only has 750 dispensaries when on a per capita basis, there should be 4,000 or 5,000. So there's huge cannabis deserts uh, across the state, and that's why the illegal market has persisted. Um, I can break down the taxes in in just one second, but just wanted to note that I think the biggest contributor to the illegal market in California is the fact that there are huge swaths of the state that don't have legal places where where you can buy cannabis. And so why is that? So if 70% of the cities voted in favor for Prop 64, but we're only seeing about 20%, uh, actually be online because you know prop 64 was a long time ago the, these cities have these municipalities have had uh ample time mm-hmm. to sort of get their ducks in a row and get cannabis legal i was like why hasn't it happened as quickly as or why has it taken so long 
Yeah, you know, the good news is that this is changing, and this is something we can talk about in a second, about how COVID and other factors like cannabis normalization have led more cities to authorize retail. And that's kind of part of the bull case for California over the long term. But I think the short and simple answer is what is true in California is true across the country, in the United States at least. There's a big disconnect between how the people feel about cannabis and the people who are represented you know, that represent people make decisions on cannabis. That's that's true across the country. And a lot of times, you know, elected officials feel that the better, you know, that the more cautious move for them is to, to sit on their hands. It's not really a super satisfying explanation, but I think that's the case. And, you know, if we unpack that a little bit more, I think one of the smart things that states like New York have done is, mm-hmm. you know, they are allowing cities to opt out of legal cannabis, and yet they're enabling a very quick referendum process. So they're saying, hey, cities, like you can opt out of legal cannabis, but then we're going to kick it to the voters. And in those instances, the voters can, you know, very easily vote to allow legal cannabis. And so I think that's a good lesson that the East Coast is learning from the West Coast, because the referendum process there um, is a little bit more difficult. But, um, but in, in short, I think the big takeaway, right, the really astonishing thing is there's 750 dispensaries in California, which is the same number of dispensaries there are in Colorado or in Oregon, even though those states have a fraction of California's population. And those huge cannabis deserts are the reason why legal cannabis sales um, are dwarfed by illegal cannabis sales. So this is obviously a question. You know, you say 750 dispensaries across California. Given that there's 40 million people in California, plus it's a massive tourist destination, what is the number that you think California should have in terms of dispensaries? Yeah, the ratio that I see most commonly is one dispensary for every 10,000 residents. Um, This is a ratio that's been reflected in state legislation that has tried to been passed about like, what's the minimum number of dispensaries that should exist. So in a typical city, you know, if you have 100,000 people, you should have 10 dispensaries. Um, And so that supports the idea that California on a per capita basis should have 4,000 dispensaries rather than 750. Um, wow. Okay. So yeah, so that's a massive, massive number up from, from where we are. Totally. Um, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say go ahead. And and so I think that's the big thing, but the second thing I was just going to touch on is the point you made Abby regarding taxes, right? So the taxes are just really high in in the state, right? So all in there's a 40% tax rate. So there's a 15% excise tax at the state level. Then local municipalities have the ability to set their own, you know, tax on cannabis sales. That's generally between eight to 10%. Then there's the sales tax that's imposed in California, which is 9.5%. And then there's a cultivation tax, which is $9.65 per dry weight ounce. And the thing that people fail to realize is because the cultivation tax is applied at the beginning of the supply chain, it compounds as it goes through the supply chain. So if you add up all of those taxes, it's you know a 40 plus percent tax rate. Um, and that just makes the legal market um, not, not that competitive. That's absolutely insane. So mm-hmm. sir, can you touch a little bit about the cultivation tax compounding as it goes down the supply chain. So for example, you know, let's say the cultivator grows it and you said it's $9 and 60 cents. Yeah, it's $9. And it's really interesting. California has a unique tax structure when it comes to cultivation and that there's a $9 and 65 cent tax per dry weight ounce applied to cannabis. And that's applied at cultivation, right? And so that contributes to the price of cultivated cannabis. Now that cannabis is ultimately Mm -hmm. sold later on down the supply chain, say at a retail store and the tax rate, right? The excise tax that we were just talking about, that's applied to the amount that includes the cultivation tax, right? So it's a tax on top of a tax. And so it's a tax that (laughs) compounds itself through the supply chain. Um, And that's why the taxes are even higher than a lot of people even realize. So that's, I I didn't, I didn't even realize that was that high. 40% is insane. It's insane. Right. Um, and so, and, and that's, and that's like that, that's, that could just be across certain municipalities, right? There are certain municipalities because you said there's also a municipality tax. Uh, exactly. So municipalities have generally imposed an eight to 10% tax. And what's interesting, Abby, is all of these negative things, you know, as later on in the conversation, we'll highlight how some of these things are changing and we'll make the, the market more ideal. But, you know, over the past, I'd say three years, municipalities have imposed an eight to 10% tax. That is changing and is getting, you know, more in the four to 6% range, which is progress. But you're mm-hmm. right. That's that's what contributes to this huge and super onerous uh, tax rate. There are some municipalities that have gone as high as 15%, right? So um, so, so it, it can really get out of hand in certain places. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, put, a, we'll put a pin on that. The, ta- the taxing um, structure, I guess, is becoming more favorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that on, you know, as we get to get to the, get to the what's changed in California. Um, yep. I mean, and, and- yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. 
And, and, and the last kind of things that I'll mention that contribute to the illegal market, right? We talked about the lack of um, points of distribution and also the taxes, but I, I would point out two more things. One is just the history of cannabis in the state. California is unique in that it's allowed medical cannabis since 96. There's a huge like quasi-legal cannabis market that has existed as part of California culture for several decades, and that makes the illicit market much harder to uproot. That simply doesn't exist in a lot of East Coast states. Uh, and, and then the final thing I'll, I'll note that contributes to the illegal market in California, the irony here is this, this is actually the bull case for California, is that like interstate commerce, right? The, 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 the absence of interstate commerce is contributing to the illegal market because people are shipping cannabis into other states. And the irony, of course, is that's why California is so attractive, right? Other states <laughs> that have legal cannabis nonetheless are still illegally importing cannabis from, from California. But that, that's also something, you know, until that problem is solved, California's illegal market will not be fully solved. That's absolutely that's crazy. I never I've never even thought about that. And I, it, it, it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Right in the illicit market. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've always looked at the illicit market in the same ones I look at the legal market. And yes, in the illicit market, of course, there's interstate commerce. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, as, as you put that, it was just like a duh. Moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, look, like we've kind of outlined sort of where we are in California. Mm -hmm. um, we went kind of a little bit over, over the numbers. Now, you know, let's start. Off, let's start this episode. So, so, we, so we've got a good, good picture of the landscape. So now, if you were an investor, or if you were somebody looking at it, like, why wouldn't you invest in California? Yeah, I, I think um, so. Th there's a few reasons why folks have shied away from from California, and I think we've we've touched on on some of them. Um, so one of them is a huge illegal market, right? Like, if I wouldn't want to invest in California if I have to compete with an illegal market that doesn't have to pay taxes and isn't regulated and is dominant, right? So it, it makes sense that those competitive dynamics are are not favorable. Um, mm -hmm. I would say the second thing is that California is not a quote unquote limited license state. A lot of MSOs in particular have gravitated towards these markets um, that are limited license where they can carve up some portion of the state. I think a good example of this is like a Virginia where it's like, okay, we're going to divide the state into five pieces and you get this piece and you get this piece, right? That, that doesn't happen in California. So that's another reason MSOs have shied away. And then I think a third reason um, is taxation, right? Like the taxation levels are, are really high. So I think those are the three reasons why MSOs have shied away. Um, I want to highlight that I think it's all of those in combination, right? I think those things by themselves are not enough. Like I'll note that Illinois still has a very high tax rate, and yet MSOs mm -hmm. have chosen to play there because on those other questions, it still is pretty good. And so it's those, right. those things in combination that um, have led MSOs to, to stay away. Although, again, I, I think those dynamics will change uh, in the coming years. What are your thoughts on vertical integration? Because, you know, when I first started investing in cannabis, I wasn't the biggest fan of vertical integration because I looked at other uh, sectors and vertical integration doesn't really make sense. And California was always that state where it's like, hey, listen, vertical integration doesn't make sense. You need to you need to specialize within the supply chain. And that makes sense across the board. But obviously, of recent, we've seen other, you know, other states like Florida or even Illinois really show the power of vertical for uh, vertical integration from an investment perspective mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um in california that's not necessarily the case right yeah you know it, it's really interesting so california is different than other states and then obviously many other states have a vertical integration requirement right states like florida and arizona that you know require you to be vertically integrated california doesn't require it you can occupy any part of the supply chain um and so then you see a lot of um, folks that specialize a little bit more and yet I think there are still a couple of things that make vertical, in vertical integration um, attractive in California right now. Um, so one of them is cost, right? So vertical integration obviously allows you to keep your costs down. And in a market, when you're competing with the illicit market that is so strong, anything that allows you to sell products at a lower price bodes well for your enterprise. So I think that makes vertical integration attractive, the cost structure. And then the other thing is, because the California market is so fragmented, right, it's very difficult to rely on other operators. And so vertical integration means you have to minimize your reliance on other partners and vendors. Um, and because California is so fragmented and the licensing has been so schizophrenic, um, that has been very difficult for, for operators to, to manage. And so I think those are a couple of reasons why vertical integration is still advantageous in California right now. Of course, mm -hmm. obviously it requires, there's a huge capital requirement associated there. So it's not an option for, for many operators. Um, the, the only other thing I'll say is that I think over the long term, right, in a world of interstate commerce, the vertical integration model may make less sense. And there may be some folks in California who purely say specialize in cultivation and, and don't see vertical integration as, as, as important uh, anymore. So those are some of sure. my thoughts on it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and especially like specializing in brands as well. Um, that's where I kind of saw the whole opportunity with 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 specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and 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 I couldn't agree with you more on on the vertical uh, integration stuff. Like, it does give you a lot more uh, control over your supply chain if you can successfully be vertically integrated, especially if regulation allows for it. It's mm-hmm. just odd because you always hear that California is so fragmented, right? And mm-hmm. usually, when it's like a very fragmented uh, sac- uh, industry, um, vertical integration, if you can. If you can sort of, uh, what's what's the term that I'm looking for? If you can successfully execute on it, like mm-hmm. you're you're laughing, right? Because your your dependency with you, having full control over your supply chain in a state like California would be massive, mm-hmm. right? Because we saw um, what 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 did, what did we see? I think it was last year, prices for dry flour started going through the roof because of the because of the flowers, mm-hmm. or sorry, because of the fires, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And if you didn't have your own grow, you were basically getting gouged. Right. I mean, that, that's a great example, right? When you have to rely on other partners, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then when there's disruptions either caused by weather events or a licensing event or some other snafu, then it can really impact you. So absolutely. That's that's a good example of one of the advantages of, of having everything in-house. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, it took me a long time to finally see the light for it. But I, I still do believe that I still do believe in the California model where um, specialization will eventually come to light. I just don't think it like the time is as imminent right now as uh, vertical integration is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's go back to we, so we said okay. So the reason why you're not the biggest fan of California is that there's a massive illicit illegal market. We've already touched on that a little bit. Um, is there anything that's being done to sort of combat this? Yeah, I think there are things organically that are are um, sort of addressing all of these issues that, that we're talking about. So, um, you know, there's retail expansion that's happening across the state. Um, individual jurisdictions are adopting lower tax rates. Um, and so all of these uh, pain points that we've identified, um, we can point to trends where these challenges are, are being addressed. And I think that's part of the optimistic case for California over the longer term. Gotcha. Okay. And then in terms of obviously the taxation would also... Um fall in line with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the limited license state angle? Uh, yeah, I mean, so California, I would say is a, um, a market just like Massachusetts or, or maybe like Michigan, right? And so um, it is a state in which there's no um, set number of licenses, uh, you know, identified at the state level and local jurisdictions have a lot of, um, you know, autonomy to decide how they're going to license cannabis businesses. And so, yeah, I mean, some people, uh, you know, are, are less comfortable with states like these. They prefer states like Arizona, where they know that, hey, there's going to be 150 licenses statewide. Um, with that being said, you know, these local jurisdictions still present like pretty meaningful obstacles to stores coming online. So um, I, I think maybe too much is made of that distinction because there are still kind of barriers to entry that exist. But yeah, in, in California, a lot of this decision making happens at the local level. Well, so what are those barriers to entries? Because that's one thing that uh, I, th- I think a lot of people are uh, overlooking, that there are barriers to entry within California. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the biggest barrier to entry has been local control, right? So there's not a lot of dispensaries that exist statewide because cities have to decide to license cannabis businesses. Now, the optimistic case over the long term is that more cities are going to choose to do so. Um, but still, right, those cities have to make those decisions. And so that functions as a barrier to entry. I guess I would say take Massachusetts as an example, right? There's no mm-hmm. statewide cap, right, on the number of dispensary licenses that are issued, but there's still a pretty limited amount of retail in the state, and those retail licenses are still valuable because it just takes cities a long time to authorize those those businesses. And so that's just a way of saying I think sometimes too much is made of this distinction between limited license and unlimited license states because even states where decision making happens at the local level rather than the state level, like there are still constraints and limits on how many businesses are going to be licensed. Right. One of the reasons, and I think we're going to touch on this later, because when you and I were chatting before, we talked about this. But one of the reasons I know a lot of um, investors really, uh, really prefer limited license states is that if a company has a certain market share, right, and the state is projected to grow at a certain growth rate, you can just do the back of the napkin math and be like, okay, I own company ABC, they own 10% of this state, the state is expected to grow at, you know, uh, X million dollars, you can you can sort of capture and you can you can look back and say, hey, I'm going to capture 10% of that growth, mm-hmm. right? It's really difficult to do that in California, right? So that's one of the reasons that I think a lot of people have shied away from California. Is that it's extremely difficult to predict um, how much a company can grow in California. Because remember, we talked about some really rosy numbers over here. California is hitting a run rate of about five point or what five point five billion, I'd say, mm-hmm. um, for twenty twenty, right? Or sorry, for twenty twenty one, right? Um, 
how much of that is going to be captured by a Leaf? How much of that is going to be captured by, you know, an, another company, like a, a smaller shop that's out in California? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, California is like an anti-Florida or an anti-Virginia, right? It's, it's not an mm -hmm. oligopoly, you know, in some of these other markets, right? These companies are basically selling ice in the desert. They can credibly say that they're going to own 20 or 25% of the market. Florida is obviously the example of where one company owns 50% of the market. Um, so that'll never happen in California. And yet, you know, as we'll sort of talk about later, I think there are still many ways to win in California, even if, you know, you won't be able to lay claim to half the market, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll we'll put a pin on that one. We'll come back to that one as well. Um, and then so so we talked about we also talked about taxation as well and how it is getting better. Um, do you want to touch on that in terms of like why taxation is getting better? Yeah, I, I think maybe I'll just break down sort of the the sort of three things that I think are are making um, trends in, that are improving California. So one is retail expansion. Um, second, I would say local ordinances are getting more competitive and business friendly. And third, the delivery markets improving. So the first one is just retail expansion. You know, we, we've talked about it. There's 750 dispensaries that exist in California. There should be about 4,000 to 5,000. And what we're seeing every year is more and more cities and counties authorize retail. Um, ordinances. So, I mean, just to look at the data a little bit, um, at the end of 2018, about 50 out of the 500 cities in California had passed a retail ordinance. By the end of 2019, that number was like 85. Right now, that number stands at 115. And there are currently 35 cities that are drafting an ordinance or on the verge of passing an ordinance. So in 2022, we should have 150 cities um, that have passed a retail ordinance. And so basically you're seeing more and more cities pass retail ordinances. So there's more points of distribution. And I would also just say, you know, COVID really accelerated this trend. I think there's been a lot of discussion about the impact that COVID has had on different legal markets. And I think that's especially true um, in California, right? Many people have made the claim that COVID drove people from the illegal to the legal market for health reasons, given how big the illegal market was in California. That's certainly true. You know, innovations like curbside pickup um, were particularly important in California, given the limited number of, of points of distribution. So I would say that the first important trend in California is that there's a lot more retail licensing. And I think you'll see like each year over the next four to five years, about 500 new stores come online. And if you think about it, given that there's only 750 online right now, that's a tremendous addition to the retail market. So that's good. Sorry. I was going to say, how long does it take for one of these stores to come online? So it generally, it generally takes 18 months. And so that's sort of, you know, you see legislation change and then there's a period of time before the, the market really feels it. And I would just analogize it to sort of like the East Coast states, right? New York passed a, uh, you know, cannabis adult use ordinance four or five months ago. We're really going to start to see the fruits of that in about another year or so. And so the same thing is, is true in California. And so I think the exciting thing is that COVID really accelerated the number of cities that were passing retail ordinances. And we won't see that show up in the numbers until 2022, for example. And so that um, that's sort of a leading indicator of how the legal market will grow. Gotcha. Okay. So I mean, an 18 month lag, that's a pretty long time, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, so let's say one of these uh, cities that had passed um, uh, their the retail ordinances, let's say it was uh, last month, right? So that's still going to be until about June, like so going from July 2021, at 18 months to that, you're looking at about January, February 2023. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, what like, is there a forecasted number of stores that are expected to come online month over month up like, like leading into that? Uh, yeah, so I'll give you an example, right? So last week, the the um, state of California um, released a report on the number of state licenses they issued that week, right? And it was nine last week, right? And so if you do the math, like over the course of a year, that would be about 500 stores each year. And so I think you're going to start to see the pace of retail licensing pick up where 300, 400, 500 new stores will, will come online each year. And you're absolutely right, Abby. There's like an 18-month lag between when these ordinances are passed and when these stores start to come online. And so a lot of the growth that we've seen right over the last 12 months have been the mm -hmm. cities that passed ordinances in like late 2018 and 2019. A lot of the cities that passed ordinances during COVID, we're going to start to see that um, start to impact us uh, next year. And so that's sort of the slow trickle of growth in the legal market that we're going to experience uh, going forward. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And and that that's very well put, right? So a lot of the growth that we have seen were from 2018, as and you're saying more and the acceleration or the or the the um, the number of stores that are coming online is obviously growing as well. 
Yeah, I, I would just say it's it's kind of like a long tail. I would analogize it to Colorado, right? So people kind of forgot that. So Colorado started adult use sales in 2014. It wasn't mm-hmm. until 2019 that a majority of cities in Colorado, which also had like a very like local structure to its decision making, allowed for cannabis retail. And so I think you're going to see something very similar in California where there's a slow trickle. And one thing that's really accelerated that trickle has been COVID, right? And so it's sort of that long tail of growth, but COVID accelerating um, that, that tail of growth. Gotcha. And now this is another question that I'm going to ask. And the only reason I'm going to ask this is because in Ontario, you know, we had uh, retail distribution as the bottleneck, and then now we're seeing a lot of stores come online. But now we're having a, a different, well, I mean, not really, but we're, we're kind of having a different issue of like products being on the shelves or product availability based off of what consumers want. Is that something that you see uh, being a factor in California? So as more and more of these stores come online, is there enough cultivation? Is there enough dispensary or uh, distribution to keep the shelves stocked? Uh, Yeah, I'd say absolutely. Right now, there's a huge supply demand imbalance in California. There's not enough retail, right? And there's more cultivation licenses um, than there are retailers to serve them. And so that that supply demand imbalance is is so out of whack that that I think we need many thousands more stores uh, before that becomes an issue. Before that becomes an issue. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, Um, And out of curiosity, I don't know, do you know how many cultivation licenses are in California? There's actually about 7,000 cultivation licenses in California. Now, they vary dramatically, right, in in their size and their output, but there's a ton. And that really gives you a sense of how different, you know, cannabis licensing in California is from Florida, where there are like 13 cannabis companies. Yeah, that's that's absolutely insane. So 7,000 cultivation licenses and 750 dispensaries. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) There Um, you go. Now you're starting to see why there's an issue. Right. Um, but, but yeah, to sort of summarize this here, right, I would say, so the, the bullish case for California over the medium term, one is this retail expansion, more cities are authorizing dispensary licenses that'll cut into the illegal market. And the other two I just quickly highlight is that cities are adopting more business friendly ordinances. So one of the benefits of more cities coming online is that cities that are neighbors with one another are coming online and they are adopting more business friendly ordinances in order to attract cannabis businesses for the first time. And again, this is one of these qualitative things that, um, you know, is is only evident if you pay close attention to the market. But for the first two or three years of the California market, cities were just trying to gouge cannabis businesses. But now they're seeking to attract them because they see them as a good source of tax revenue. So, I mean, just one example I'll give you is the city of San Jose, one of the biggest cannabis markets in California, has long had a 10 percent retail cannabis, you know, uh, tax. Um, sales tax, but Redwood City, which is a neighboring city, the only other in San, other city in San Mateo County to authorize cannabis retail, just passed an ordinance with a four percent tax rate, and that's leading San Jose to rethink its tax rate. So the the second thing you're seeing is a, a more favorable local tax rates and, and a more favorable business environment. Um, and then the third thing that I'll just highlight is next year the state is going to increase what it calls case pack value, which is the amount of cannabis that a delivery driver can have in their car. So right now, a delivery driver in California can have $5,000 of cannabis in their car, but next year, the state's going to increase that to at least $10,000. And delivery is one of the most effective ways to cut into the illegal market, particularly in these huge cannabis deserts. So all of these factors in, you know, in combination with one another will help bolster the legal market. And so I'll just kind of conclude by saying, you know, what's you know, going to be a $5.2 billion market this year will be a $6 billion market the year after that and a $7 billion market the year after that. And you'll see a steady migration from the illegal to the legal market. And and that's really significant. You know, each year, California is going to be adding a state market the size of like Washington or, um, you know, Nevada or Oregon. And so that's the incremental steady growth we'll see um, over the next few years. For sure. And so you you just said a lot there. So let's unpack that a little bit more. So let's start with um, cities that are adopting more business-friendly ordinances. So um, San Jose, 10% retail, ta- uh, 10% retail tax, Redwood, uh, 4%. And so this is obviously causing San Jose to re- rethink their taxing. Um, is th- this is, I'm, I'm assuming that this is the main driver for tax compression, what you were talking about earlier, um, as it being uh, something, something more favorable, that as more and more cities come online, you know, the consumer is actually benefiting from this by getting less and less taxes, or sorry, by paying less and less taxes. Yeah, it's definitely good for the consumer and and reduces sticker shock. And and you're right, this is the primary way that the tax environment in California is becoming more healthy. And and Mm -hmm. it's a pretty big deal. I mean, one example I'll give you is there's a city in the Central Valley called Tulare that just passed a 2% retail tax rate. And that's unheard of, like that would have been unheard of three years ago. And, you know, they explicitly did this because they saw how many of their neighbors in the Central Valley had developed a really effective 
um, retail cannabis ecosystems and they wanted to undercut them. And so that's just one example of how, you know, there is now a competitive dynamic manifesting themselves among cities. And it's not just true in terms of taxation. It's also true in terms of um, land use policy. So um, Abby, you had mentioned earlier, like, hey, 18 months is a really long time before a store can come online. Absolutely. And so now there are other cities that are saying, okay, like we want these stores to come online quickly and start generating revenue for us immediately. And so there are cities that are, you know, adopting things called development agreements where a store comes online in 10 months rather than 18. And you're seeing all of all of these little factors that are creating a more hospitable business environment for uh, for operators. Gotcha. Hey, so I've got a question for you. This is just kind of going more on the cannabis consumer, the California cannabis consumer. So when you look at a state that's like a limited license state, if you get one of those coveted licenses, you get a certain runway before your competition can kind of come in, right? And in California, even though it wasn't a limited license state, there were certain municipalities that had obviously uh, a massive runway before these new states come on, like Redwood uh, or Tulare, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like... (laughs) When when I was in LA, when we were driving around, we were going through a a whack load of different municipalities that we didn't even know we were in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because they were so closely knit together. Um, Do California cannabis consumers, do they travel a lot? Like, let's say, for example, um, Ken Redwood, is Redwood just trying to keep its consumers from going to San Jose or will they be able to track the San Jose consumer? Uh, yeah, so Redwood City is both trying to keep its consumers from going to San Jose and it's trying to capture that in, you know, entire regional market, right? So anyone who's familiar with the Bay Area um, knows San Mateo County. San Mateo County is basically sandwiched between San Francisco and San Jose. It's one of the wealthiest counties in, in California. That county mm-hmm. has a total lack of cannabis retail. So everybody in that really wealthy county where Facebook and Box and other big tech companies are um, go to San Jose or San Francisco for their cannabis. So Redwood City is trying to say, hey, everyone in this county that goes to San Francisco and San Jose, come here. Not only our citizens, but um, everybody else in Burlingame and you know all, all these other neighboring wealthy cities. Gotcha. And are they just competing on price or is there product discrepancies as well? Um, I would say, you know, the, the product selection, there, there's consistently strong product selection, I would say, in a lot of dispensaries in California. I think California ranks towards the highest in terms of the number mm-hmm. of SKUs that exist on a typical retail shelf in California, especially compared to, to other states. And so I would say, obviously, product selection is, is a good thing, but a lot of retailers um, have that. I, I would say the biggest thing is just access, right? Um, you are trying to just allow consumers to access your retail store, which is hard given the lack of retail in California. Right. Gotcha. And just one last question on, on, on these municipalities. Is there within each municipality, so obviously product selection is not an issue, but is there a, quant, like a, a, a maximum quantity that you can purchase? Uh, yeah, there, there are daily purchase limits. And these are set um, both at the state level and um, you know individual municipalities have the ability to do that. And it varies based on whether, whether you're a medical patient or not. So the daily purchase limit for a medical patient is, is higher. Um, than than for an adult use uh, customer. Okay, so sorry, it's set at the at the state level as well as the municipal level. Like certain municipalities are deciding to say, "Hey, listen, the state level is X number, but we're we're only going to give you half of X." Yeah, I mean that's uncommon. Certainly, municipalities ban certain types of products. For example, right, they might ban vapes for being sold there. Um, municipalities right. also have the ability to say, "Hey, the state says you're a medical customer if you're 18 with a medical card, but." We say you have to be 21 with a medical card. So generally, the purchase oh, okay. limits are, are set at the state level. But California has a strong tradition of local control where municipalities, in some instances, exercise uh, that control. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. That 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 makes a lot of sense because um, it, it does sound really rosy that a lot of these sta- that these new cities are coming online. But it's like, hey, let's unpack that and make sure that like you know we can compare apples to apples as opposed to. Uh, for example, not being able to buy vapes in one one city is going to be massive, right? If you if you're looking for a vape, you obviously can't buy it from that city. So um, that's something to keep an eye out on, yeah. right? When 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 like, but as you said, product selection isn't really an issue in California, um, but it's just something for a lot of uh, listeners to sort of to, to keep into consideration. That just because a city comes online doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have the exact same regulations um, or restrictions, whatever you want to call it, as its neighboring cities, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, um, and then. Sorry, go ahead. And, and yeah, so that, that's the, the competitive local ordinances. And, and then I was going to say there's the case pack value, which I think is another yeah. important factor. Yeah, and I, I think that one's a massive one because not a lot of people talk about that because distribution in California, A, there's so many jokes about LA traffic. And <laughs> for somebody who's visited LA, it's it's true, man. Like, like the traffic is actually bad in LA. Uh, I don't know about right now with COVID, but like I remember at one point we Google Maps something and it was like, 
30 minutes. It said originally 30 minute drive, but it took us almost two and a half hours to get there just because of the traffic. And it was like an eight lane highway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the traffic in LA is nuts and, and in the Bay area too, for sure. Um, and, and yeah, just given the lack of retail across the state, right? The value proposition for delivery is really strong. If there's a lack of retail outlets, then delivery makes a lot of sense. And so anything that enables you to deliver at scale more easily, including being able to carry more product in your car and thus cover a much bigger geographic area um, is, is really helpful. And I will say companies that are really thinking about this strategically, like how many customers can I serve from a delivery hub in San Diego County under a case pack value limit of 10,000 versus 15,000? And where are the points of distribution across the state that will allow me to serve this number of consumers in a given amount of time? Um, and how will the retail landscape in each of those regions evolve, right? Companies that are very data-driven making those decisions, uh, I, I think will be well-served. Um, to, to capitalize on so, this change. So let's talk about that. So right now the case pack delivery limit is five thousand dollars, mm -hmm. right? Yep. That's and it's going up to eight thousand. So there is a bill uh, before the state legislature that was considered this year and, and will be considered early next year that would raise that to ten thousand or potentially fifteen thousand dollars, which is huge, right? You can serve right. a much bigger area and could potentially not only allow you to use vehicles but also use things like cargo vans, right? And so you could just deliver um, much more easily across the state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what is the restriction right now? I, I didn't realize the cargo vans were legal or like not allowed. Yeah. So right now you you can use a normal vehicle and you can have up to $5,000 of cannabis in your car at any um, given time. And there are also um, other sort of regulations. If you don't get an order for a 30 minute period, then the driver has to return back to the facility. Right. And so there's all of these different factors to consider when you're trying to maximize the number of customers that, that you can serve. Um, another right. thing to consider is if case pack value increases, you can carry a much more diverse product selection. So who are the operators out there who are going to think really strategically about what that selection should be, especially in given markets? Right. So they can serve them really effectively. Now, is this limitation like what we're talking about? Is this business to consumer? Uh, yeah, it, it, exactly. Right. So this okay, is okay. So yeah. it's not business to business. It's not like you're going from your your warehouse to your distribution to your storefront. Right. Right. This is yeah D to C. Right. So um, okay. So I'm, this I'm, is I'm, essentially like last mile delivery. Exactly. Yeah. So how much um, cannabis can I have in my car as I'm delivering to customer after customer after customer? Right. So yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, that's very interesting because that would that would be a game changer of going. You, you'd, let's say the fifteen thousand passes, or even if it doesn't, the ten thousand passes. You're either doubling or tripling the amount that you could possibly be carrying, right? Mm -hmm. And then adding cargo vans would obviously have its benefits as well. Totally. And you know, again, delivery is just a really effective way to compete with the illegal market. The illegal market thrives on convenience. And so obviously there's this secular trend towards e-commerce that we talk about all the time, but particularly mm -hmm. for cannabis, it's very valuable, especially in a huge state like California. So I think it really fundamentally changes the dynamics of the delivery game in, in California. So one other thing that I know about California is that it's extremely decentralized, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So delivery has obviously had a massive problem or you have a really big issue if you have a decentralized supply chain or if you have a decentralized state uh, and you're trying to figure out where the bit like the where, where your closest consumers are. Right. Um, is there anything being done to sort of alleviate that? Well, it, it's decentralized in the sense that like you get your delivery license from a, a local jurisdiction. And so mm -hmm. you have to think about, right, okay, so what local jurisdiction can I get a license in and what universe of neighboring cities that does that allow me to serve, right? So that's the way you really want to think, like which cities are going to be licensing cannabis delivery businesses and what is the territory that I can cover by being licensed there? And I, I would say, you know, the big impact of the sort of like fragmentation that you're talking about is a, a big debate we've been having in California for a while is can a city ban another city, right, from delivering to its residents, right? Like, can I prevent a neighboring city from delivering cannabis to my own residents? And thus far, the state has basically allowed uh, cities to deliver to residents of neighboring cities, even if the other cities don't like it, right? And so... That is well, a, so, go ahead. Sorry. So my, my question is what's banned in that neighboring city? Because is it that like, so for example, you know, let's use San Jose and Redwood, right? Um, I, I don't really know how close they are together, but let's just say if I was a consumer in Redwood City and I ordered from San Jose, but at the time it's illegal, is that allowed or is that just no? Uh, so Redwood City can choose not to license cannabis delivery companies of its own, but basically the state has taken the posture so far that Redwood City can't really prevent a, you know, a neighboring city like a San Jose delivery cannabis company from delivering to a resident of Redwood City. Now, gotcha. there's actually a, a complicated court case about this very issue that's been ongoing mm -hmm. for a while. So there's a little bit of ambiguity, but... Uh, 
basically it's critical to the delivery business in California to, to be able to deliver into neighboring jurisdictions. And so it's, yeah, it's of course. To, yeah. Then that'd be retained. Gotcha. And, th- and that also makes sense of why, um, Redwood is being so uh, not aggressive, but so competitive on the on the taxing structure too, right? If they if they've if 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 you've had a couple of years, right? Let's say if I was a resident of Redwood and I've been buying from the San Jose dispensary all my life, mm-hmm. or all like whatever the last couple of years, and I've developed a loyalty program or whatever, I really like this dispensary. It's going to be really hard to get me to switch to a closer local dispensary, unless if obviously it's, it's the same product for a cheaper price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I, I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't know that if I lived in Redwood, I could order from San Jose mm-hmm. and still get it delivered to my door. Absolutely. And so, you know, the, the really smart companies are the ones that are going to be setting up, you know, a dozen of those hubs across the state, right? In in the important um, sort of areas where they can serve a huge universe of consumers. Yeah, that's. I mean, that that, that alone sounds like a, a nightmare to start looking into. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine how difficult that is. Um, so, I mean, like, look, these are all positives, right? So we're seeing a positive trend in terms of retail expansion. We're seeing cities that are becoming more business-friendly, um, business-friendly, and, like, we're seeing taxes come down based off of that. And then now we're seeing case-back values increase from 5000 to potentially ten to 15000 based off of this, which would make distribution quite more favorable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's a good, in my opinion, these all seem like really good, like, obviously, um, good reasons to invest in California, right? And so this, I guess that kind of goes, we kind of covered over what's changed in California. Mm-hmm. I guess we kind of went through that with the, with, the, with, the, with the retail expansions and stuff. So, I mean, knowing the, not the rest, but knowing the where the, where the state is currently, what's sort of upcoming, what's your investment thesis? And yeah. how would you play this state right now? Yeah, what I would basically say, if we zoom out a little bit, I'd say California is a very challenging market that is getting less challenging um, over time for the reasons that we've discussed. So the caveats I would add is like, look, you're, you know, an operator in California, you're not going to have the best EBITDA margins over the next two to three years. In California, you're never, as we've discussed, going to have, you know, the market share that you might have in another state like Florida. And yet, I think because of the trends that we've discussed, there's many ways to win over the medium and, and long term. Um, and I'd say, you know, there's ways to win in, in retail. Um, there's smart delivery plays to make. Um, there are some smart uh, cultivation angles that I, I really admire, um, some, some brands that I think are making smart moves. Um, and, and we can sort of just walk through each of those hypotheses um, and, and, and what folks are doing sort of one by one. Um, yeah, for sure. Let, let, let's start with let's start with why you can't compete in EBITDA margins. Yeah, I, you know, I, I just think you're, you're never going to be able to generate the same EBITDA margins in California over the next, let's say, two to three years than you will be able to in some of these other states, you know, states like Florida, states like Pennsylvania, states like Illinois. And that's, you know, for the reasons that we've discussed before, the business environment in those states is just more hospitable. There's not as big of an illegal market. Um, there's a limited license structure where states essentially have an oligopoly. They're selling ice in the desert. Um, and so California is not going to, to be like that. At the same time, I think a lot of that fragmentation will bode well for operators over the medium and, and long term, right? I think there are things that you can learn in, in California um, that will be beneficial sort of over the long term, even if you won't be able to generate the same margins uh, in, in the shorter term. Okay, gotcha. So that, so that, so that, that, that makes sense. Um, so let's talk about how you can compete, where you're, you said we, we would talk about retail distribution and brands. So let's start with retail. Yeah, I mean, so I basically think there's a there's a bunch of retailers that I think have made smart plays um, so far, just given that retail licensing is pretty limited across the state. Uh, operators that can assemble a portfolio of strong retail assets across the state can be really um, attractive acquisition targets. We were just talking about how difficult the organic retail application process is in California and how it takes 18 months. A lot of these larger operators, especially those that are out of the state and that are unfamiliar with those licensing processes, they're going to want to make um, acquisitions. And so I think we've already seen a bunch of examples of this, right? There are companies like Project Cannabis, right? They're acquired by by Columbia Care, right? Prime acquisition um, target. Um, we saw Element 7, right? That had uh, won about 17 retail licenses across the state, be acquired by Glasshouse, right? So those are folks that have assembled, you know, good retail assets. Um, there are other companies in California. Harborside is obviously a, a very, very well-known brand that has great retail assets in, in Northern California. I think that'll be a really attractive operator uh, for some larger MSOs down the road. 
Um, there are companies that may be less well-known outside of California, companies like Shrine Group, for instance, that have some of the most retail assets in the state, or, or companies like Perfect Union um, that have a bunch of retail assets. So I think that's basically one way to win, which is to assemble a bunch of attractive retail assets across the state, because those retail licenses are, are really valuable. And I think it's important to note that a lot of times those aren't in the sexiest jurisdictions across the state. You know, people talk a lot about San Francisco and Los Angeles, but there are some operators that have developed just incredible retail assets in less well-known cities. Um, I take a, a city like Salinas, for instance, where a company, Grupo Floor, has one of the most successful dispensaries in the state, even though Salinas is probably um, less well-known. Uh, another example of this is a city like Stanton, right? Most folks probably don't know Stanton, but it's right next to Anaheim, where, where Disneyland is, um, and Fullerton, which are two really attractive towns that have decided that they're going to pass on cannabis, at least for the next couple of years. And so Stanton is going to be able to dominate just a huge portion um, of, of the Orange County market. And so um, I, I guess I would wrap that by saying um, companies that have identified and obtained really valuable retail licenses in strategic parts of the state who understand those regional market dynamics, um, they're going to be prime acquisition targets. And, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, Abby, like it's not as easy as in other states, right? In other states, you're like, yeah, Cureleaf can own 10% of the market. But if those companies can do an effective way of communicating the enduring value of the retail assets that they have, um, then I, I think they can be, be prime targets. Um, other sort of companies that I'll mention, like Vi Bioscience is a, a public company that's also assembled great retail assets. So, yeah, I, I think that's one way. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, look, listen, so obviously you've got a fountain of knowledge in California. You've got the advantage of being down there and you're probably on the phone all the time talking to t talking to these guys and you've been able to sort of piece together all this for the, for your average retail investor when they're looking at California, you know, what's a good, where's a good place to start on finding out what is a very attractive jurisdiction? Cause some of those uh, cities that you, that you, that you mentioned there, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. Well, yeah. How would you start looking at jurisdictions to be like, okay, this is a good jurisdiction. There should be some more dispensaries out here. Yeah, I would say, so first, I mean, if these are retail investors investing in public companies, you should be able to access at least some information about how these assets are performing. I think that's important information to know. For sure. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, unfortunately, the, the less than satisfying answer is it'll require a little bit of work, right? If you're really serious about California and particularly trying to identify the strength of different retail operators, you're really going to have to understand the regional market dynamics that exist in the state. There, there's a lot of good online resources and people that can help you do that. But unfortunately, it'll require more effort than it will to, you know, just just look at another state and think about who the four companies are, right, that, that have licenses there. Um, gotcha. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think that's one way, which is sort of the retail play. Uh, a, a second way to win that we've sort of talked about before, I think, is delivery. I think the delivery market is going to become more attractive in California. We, we've talked about this a little bit already, but first, there are massive cannabis deserts across the state. In many parts of the state, the only way to access legal cannabis is via delivery. And so that makes delivery very attractive. Obviously, there's this secular trend towards delivery that exists in you know a lot of different industries that many people talk about all the time. And it's something that COVID has accelerated. And then finally, as, as we've been discussing, I think an increase in case pack value, which is likely to happen next year, can really accelerate how attractive a delivery is. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking of parts of the state that, again, Kern County, for example, one of the more conservative parts of the state near Bakersfield that um, doesn't have any cannabis retail whatsoever is one of the biggest cannabis um, deserts in the state. There's a company, 420 Kingdom, that has set up shop out there and that is doing delivery and that delivers like 100 miles in each direction and is doing incredible business out there. And that's just one example of many um, delivery companies across the state have, that have been really thoughtful about where they want to set up and that will benefit even more as these regulations uh, get more and more permissible over time. For sure. And one, one of the issues that I've always found with delivery is that delivery sounds great, uh, but it's A, extremely difficult to execute on. B, the margins are not as high as you'd see in like retail or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I mean, business to consumer, you can sort of make some of it, make some of it back up. Um, but like having like a hundred mile radius for delivery, with a $5,000 case pack limit, like how much are you really pulling in? Exactly. Right. Exactly. No, totally. And and so that's exactly why, as you mentioned, delivery is a lower margin business, which is why being able to deliver more product, right. And being able to be out mm -hmm. on the road, right. More often mm -hmm. and, and being able to keep your fixed cost down is, is absolutely critical. And then, you know, obviously the other piece of that is it really helps if you're delivering your own product, right. So, um, you know, a, a company that not only cultivates, but has a brand and also does delivery um, can also be really well, well positioned being forward. Cause obviously that makes the cost structure more attractive. Gotcha. And then you said the secular trend towards delivery. Um, as more 
jurisdictions come online, as more retail comes online, do you think this this uh, this this demand for delivery is still going to be there? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think we as consumers will continue to get lots of products delivered to us, right? Um, consumers will have more delivery options in a world in which delivery companies can carry more products and you know more delivery companies can access them because case back value has increased. And although retail will increase in California, I mean, we are so short on retail right now that um, you know, we would have to have many thousand more dispensaries for retail to become less attractive of an option. And, you know, we're, right. we're close to a decade away from, from, from yeah, for sure. Exactly. If we use that 18 month leg, mm -hmm. you can kind of do the math and yeah, you're right. It's about a decade away. Exactly. Um, and then the last thing you had mentioned, so we talked about retail, we talked about delivery and the last thing you mentioned was brands. Uh, yeah, I think, I think sort of in the brands cultivation space, there's many different ways to, to play effectively. So first, you know, we've talked, um, you know, a few times in this conversation about how there's 750 dispensaries today, there's going to be 4,000, right to 5,000 in five years, there's going to be some universe of brands that that sits on those shelves, right? There are a bunch of brands right now that are in 500 of those 750 stores, right? That are in 600 of the 750 stores. If they can keep that up and remain in 90% of those stores going forward, then their market is going to 3X or, or 4X, right? So I think that's one way that cultivators and, and, and brands can succeed. Um, I also think it's really interesting to see um, brands that are not only trying to play in California, but are trying to establish licensing deals in other states, right? Brands like Lowell that are trying to ride the retail growth in the state but are doing licensing deals with operators like Ascend in other states to start to build that brand equity to anticipate um, a world of interstate commerce. So uh, I think that's another really interesting way uh, to play. And then I think, you know, uh, another company that's doing this well is, is Glasshouse, right? That is trying to satisfy the demand that will exist as retail expands across the state, but kind of has a call option for, for interstate commerce. And so I think operators that can grow in a healthy, organic way over the next two to three years in the state as retail expands across the state and then can kind of be ready for a world of interstate commerce. Uh, th there's a really compelling story there about how they can succeed. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, 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 and I agree with you. I, I think, um, I think everybody knows, well, not everybody, but like, I really feel that a lot of brands are created out in California. You know, there's one saying, and I, I I'm one of the biggest proponents of that is I don't really think any true brand still exists in cannabis. Uh, now it's a little bit different now where we're starting to see more and more um, consistency amongst brands and we're trying to see like um, getting nationwide distribution, uh, maybe not nationwide distribution, but at least like uh, various different states. And I'm talking specifically about cookies in that one. Um, <clears throat> in in California, like are there any other brands, like I know you talked about Lowell, but is there, are there any other like legal brands that you see coming up like they have a good culture they've got they've got consistent product they're always stocked from the shelves um like things that really create a brand like are you seeing them sort of come up that nobody's really looking at right now uh yeah i mean there's tons of great brands in california i mean one i would highlight is kiva right kiva is just a very popular brand it's on tons of retail shelves in california and in other states it's also a form factor edibles that i think will be more attractive um, to more new consumers over time. So I think that's a really exciting and interesting brand. Uh, there's another brand, Old Pal. What I like about what they're doing is they have very cost competitive cannabis and, you know, they, uh, you know, sort of their slogan is it's just weed, man. Right. And that sort of, I think, um, ethic can be really compelling in, in California. So those mm -hmm. are, are just a couple of examples, but I think there's a number of, of, of those brands that um, are, are doing really effective work in the space. Gotcha. And do you think those brands would be able to, to sort of scale? Um, or use their brand equity, like leverage their brand equity and maybe get into a market like Cal uh, Florida or uh, or even Canada or, or anywhere. Yeah, you know, and so I think you're seeing those exact brands, you know, start to build up their presence in other states. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think there's a really good story there. You know, there are a lot of retail shelves in California. They will continue to scale with the state as those retail outlets um, increase. They have relationships with a lot of those buyers already, and they're already building equity in other states um, as well. So I think... Um, those are some of the brands that California will export to the country in a world of interstate commerce. For sure. And look, I, I think um, let's wrap, let's wrap the, uh, the investment thesis up here, but, but I think how you're playing the space is, is incredible, right? I think you've, you've obviously, you understand the space better than anybody else that I've ever spoken to about it. Um, you, you see the uncertainties, you see where the state is today, you see where the state is going, uh, you know, the regional, um, dynamics, uh, uh to, to, you know, you know, you know, the you understand the regional dynamics to really get a true understanding of, of the state and how you're playing. It seems really good. So just a recap on it. We're looking with Hirsch looking at brands. Uh, oh, sorry. He's looking at retail first and seeing, you know, what retail operators that are out there, how can, are, are they assembling a strong retail portfolio? And you're doing that by going through each, um, 
each region and seeing, you know, where, where, where it makes sense to have, or sorry, each jurisdiction and uh, seeing where it makes sense to have a, a, a retail dispensary, right? Yeah. Uh, on the delivery. Yeah. On the delivery side, you're obviously seeing a secular trend towards delivery case packs and case packs value is increasing or should be increasing, um, which is obviously another bull, uh, a really big bull case for it. And then obviously the brand, the, the, the brand side, I think everybody fully understands about um, California because a lot of true brands are truly uh, made out there. Yeah. Um, and, one last, sorry, go ahead. And I, I would just, you know, sort of like to put a button on it, right. And I, I would wrap by saying my thoughts are, you know, California has been a pretty challenging market, right. But uh, a lot of those things that are making it challenging are dissipating over time and are making it more attractive. And, you know, I want to be careful here. There are sometimes like even the CEOs of MSOs will say things like, well, if you win California, then you win cannabis or like you have to be in California, which I think are kind of ambiguous, you know, statements that don't really mean much. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's my perspective. My perspective is the market has been challenging, but the things that have made it challenging, you know, historically are abating. Unlike other states, there are many like nuanced specific ways to play in the space. And I think folks that, that have those theses and can execute on them can do well, even if you will never have the oligopoly that you might have in other states. So it's not as simple as simple of a story, but I still think it's a compelling story. Yeah, and it's one that's definitely worth looking into. Um, there's one more thing that I just this is like a little curveball. We talked about it a little bit yesterday, but um, you know, obviously California is um, no stranger to climate change, mm-hmm. right? If anything, it's been affected quite drastically by climate change. We're seeing insane temperatures, uh, variances that are going crazy. Forest fires happen every year. Um, you know, how do you see the environmental risks? Right, associated with just investing in general, companies in general affect cannabis. Yeah, I mean, so I, th- I think the biggest threat to the California cannabis industry is the biggest threat to the cannabis industry in this country and just globally, which is, uh, you know, environmental risk. The fact that I like the current ways that we cultivate cannabis are just unsustainable and, and very bad for the environment. And um, that's a, a huge challenge that um, people are only not now starting to come to grips with. So, I mean, I, I think you basically said it well, Abby, which is, you know, California obviously has a strong tradition of environmental protection. California has also been impacted um, very much by climate change in recent years with a lot of these wildfires that has happened in particular in parts of the state that are used for cannabis cultivation. So it really impacts the industry. Um, I would also highlight, you know, California has a law called CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. Anyone who is familiar with California knows that, you know, this is just sort of the poster child for strong government regulation. It is very difficult to build anything in California because of CEQA. CEQA is used very expansively to block a lot of projects. And so I would say not only does California have a tradition of environmental protection, but it has this law, CEQA, that is used very expansively to block all sorts of projects, including cannabis uh, projects. And I I would highlight that, you know, a a lot of people may not know this, but 80% of the California cannabis supply chain has a certain licensing status that requires essentially CEQA approval to remain legal. Um, So 80% of the California supply chain has to demonstrate compliance with the California Environmental Quality Act within the next few years, or else they will be sort of unlicensed. And so that's something that most folks wouldn't know if they don't pay attention to to the industry. But um, Mm -hmm. I I, I suppose that's just a way of saying there's a strong tradition of environmental protection. There's a lot of indoor grows in California um, that pose, pose huge environmental challenges. California, just like it's done on gas mileage, is likely to pass very robust um, environmental protections on cannabis. And the supply chain will have to adapt to that in order to, you know, remain in California. So that's a a big risk. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really like about uh, this conversation and chatting with you is I think CEQA is going to be way bigger than just California. You know, I think that is just foreshadowing what's what's going to come down the pipeline. I think the environmental concerns are going to kind of spill over to to the other states and just to the sector in general, right? Even if it once it expands beyond the U.S., once it goes beyond Canada, other other uh, countries and jurisdictions. Like, I don't think these environmental concerns are going anywhere. Um, I taught like uh, there we, we had another guest on, Chris Murray and myself. We chatted about it briefly about ESG, uh, as well as the UN and whatnot, and how there is some portfolios that have sort of earmarked some money um, that have to be environmentally friendly inv- investments, like either, either through green bonds or, or whatever, whatever metrics that they possibly give. Um, you know, from your experience in California, right, are you seeing, have you ever come across investors who are like, hey, listen, we only want to invest in environmentally friendly cannabis companies? 
I don't think we're there yet, but I think um, we will start to see more of that in, in the coming years. And I would say, as you were kind of alluding to, uh, what is both the risk is also a source of opportunity. So those cultivators mm -hmm. that can cultivate, you know, via greenhouses and very environmentally sustainable ways are perhaps yeah. very well positioned, right, for that future world in a world of, of interstate commerce. I think there's also, we often talk about ancillary businesses, right? And a lot of ancillary mm -hmm. businesses have been successful recently that are non-plant touching. I think there will be a universe of ancillary, you know, sort of environmentally focused businesses that come up in, in future years and help operators develop a more sustainable footprint. And those could be some of the most exciting operators to invest in as well. So I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's something that the industry is going to have to come to grips with in California in, in the coming years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I couldn't, and I couldn't agree with you more. And this is one of the reasons that I love looking at California is because California, in my opinion, is always where, where the industry is headed, right? Whether it's product innovation, whether it's CEQA, whether it's, you know, just like everything that I've seen ever in the cannabis space is always sort of, uh, you always look at, um, can uh, California and you're like, oh, wow, like this is way more mature of a market than anything else that we've seen. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so with that, Hirsch, you know, that kind of wraps up our episode over here. I mean, is there anything else, um, that you think that we didn't cover that, you know, of course we're going to, we're going to have you back again, but if there's anything that you leave our, our listeners with, um, you know, any last thoughts? Yeah, I guess the final thing I'll say is it's it's fascinating to me to think about how states evolve over time. And the states that we are most excited about today sometimes are not the states we're most excited about next year. And so I think as we evaluate all of these states, um, it's interesting to think about where they will be in the, in the future and, and prudent to think about if you think about, you know, if you're making your plan five to 10 years out and, and not just two years out. So. For sure, for sure. Um, and with that, guys, so this is Hirsch, Jane, I uh, Longtime listener of the, of the podcast, which is Adam on as a guest. We'll definitely have him back on again. Uh, if you guys have any questions for either myself or for Hirsch, please feel free to send us an email at cinpodcast at gmail.com. Um, thanks again, Hirsch, so much for coming on board here. I uh, loved, loved your insights. You know, we'll come back. We'll, we'll have some questions hopefully for you next, like some more questions for you next time. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll take a deeper dive on California and start going, you know, municipality by municipality. Cool. Well, thanks, Abby. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks so much. And uh, until next time. Take care. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and st strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.